everybody welcome back to the it's a mind game podcast my name is jade and today i'm so delighted to be welcoming back the wonderful jacqueline byrne no doubt you'll know her voice and you'll know her name and you'll be familiar with all the incredible offerings she's shared with us in the past but today she's back to share some wonderful new things welcome hello everyone it's so good to be back jade I'm particularly excited about this little episode today because it's a little takeaway from the last episode we did because we brought up the concept of somatization, which if you correct me at any point, please do because I know I can't pronounce it no matter how hard I try. But could you describe to us what is it and how does it affect us? Such an interesting concept and it is a tongue twister for sure. Uh, it was one of the very original older ideas in the development of psychology and psychotherapy where there was a realization that the language we would use now is that trauma was showing up physiologically in the body and it's I find it really fascinating to look from a historical lens at how women's mental health has been spoken about or not spoken about in in times of old where behavior was seen more as a physical ailment even the word hysterical some listeners might be aware comes from the the origins of the word come from um the idea that your your womb had disembodied itself and was roaming around the body and that was making your behavior um, erratic and and that was known as a woman being hysterical so that was a clinical term that was understood as um, maybe what we would now see as PMDD or or someone having a traumatic response so there's this origin of issues in mental health being being projected as medical physiological issues first and because of it taking so long for mental health to be something that could be spoken about openly and still in many, many situations, it's not. In many homes, that's not a welcome conversation or a well-received conversation. People would either consciously but often unconsciously, rather than say or knowing themselves that they felt something unbearable from a mental health perspective, they might have a migraine or they might have uh, back pain or they might feel really faint or unwell women having the vapors was another uh, one of those terms like if you watch Downton Abbey or um, any Jane Austen movie there'll often be a, a character that that has a bit of a, a bit of a turn and needs to lie down um, with some salts and have a bit of a moment and it was just seen as this kind of women's business but um, again now we could understand that as something much more meaningful where somatization shows up now where it's where I'm particularly curious about it is within the eating disorder experience because when we have distorted body image somatization is a really important framework to hold for how we might be projecting unowned parts of ourself and our experience onto our body mm-hmm. and how people talk about their body even I feel so disgusting or I just hate my arms or I I can't stand it when this part touches that part of my body. In, in, a, in a sense, doesn't really qualify the degree of disharmony they're experiencing emotionally for the physiological experience. 
unless maybe there's a sensory component at play or there's something um, in terms of neurodivergency that they're filtering that through. There's got to be an application of meaning that's beyond the situation at hand. So the that body part touching that body part stimulates a whole storyline of ideas that are unbearable to that person and it's the ideas of what that touch means that is is what causes such distress and the meaning we project onto the way bodies look as well like something I've looked at with a lot of the clients I've worked with is even unpacking somatization they've noticed and I just mentioned this in case any listeners might resonate this incredible hatred maybe for as they've gone through weight gain, the way their hips look or the way like cellulite might show up on their on their body somewhere or the way that that fold takes shape now on their stomach, on their, on their buttocks, this incredible disgust for that. And as we've unpacked that, we've often realised um, or sometimes realised that's even a memory of their mother's body Mm-hmm. And a projection of this was, I don't, if I'm in her body, maybe I will have her life or I have her limitations or I I really didn't want to be like her or I didn't want to be trapped or limited in the way she was. And having a very different body was almost a, a core way of setting a boundary of creating a different life for myself. And like hugely subconscious, it wasn't like when they thought about weight gain, they thought, oh, no, I don't want to look like my mum and then be my mum. That wasn't on the radar at all. But it's an example of where somatization can be so complex. But it, it really holds that framework for understanding that our, our body means so much more than the aesthetic and even so much more than the social idolization and diet culture component of the conversation around body image we often have somatization is much more the deeply personal deeply intergenerational trauma space of where bodies start to have meaning beyond beyond the physiological and beyond the the immediately sensory thank you for explaining that for one i just thought maybe we'll go back and just for anyone who's trying to sort of comprehend where we started and where we ended, because I know that so many women listening to this episode right now will completely understand that feeling of extreme disgust or despair when those certain things pop up for them, whether it be uh, their thighs touching, whether it be a, a role presenting itself or a pocket of cellulite, or as you said, the, the arms suddenly feel different or they look different. There's so many things that resonate for different women. But I guess to articulate whether the red flag is when the intense feeling isn't suitable for what's triggered the intense feeling. So uh, I guess disgust is a good example as if you've, if anyone watched Fear Factor, God knows how long ago, you know, those really rotten hundred year old emu eggs, you know, it looks gross, it smells gross. There's plenty of senses being stimulated to kind of confirm that that actually is quite a disgusting thing. But when we apply it to this scenario, when you've got perhaps through your thighs touching, when you think about it from a non-emotional perspective, because I understand anyone listening might feel very emotional about this and I, I understand that, but if we can take a step back away from that and perhaps see friends or family who might have their thighs that touch and it's never been a thought, mm-hmm. it's purely something that happens, 
that's sort of the red flag of the somatization. I don't even want to say it in <laughs> um, situation where it's like absolutely you're feeling this extreme feeling of disgust or despair, but it's not fitting to the symptom that's causing it. And when you look deeper into it, which is where getting help for this process can be really beneficial because I'd imagine um, there would be so many blocks because we're protecting ourselves from the story, right? Because otherwise we'd know the story and we wouldn't get to where we, we end up. So that idea of having someone to hold your hand and kind of talk you through, well, why does it feel this way? How does it feel this way? When did it start? Where did it begin? Who does this, I guess, thought link to because I know on a personal level and then with clients as well there might be stories where let's say the idea of a weight gain takes them back to a time where someone was accusing them of being fat or lazy or incompetent or silly or stupid or you know a whole a whole bag of negative things so now suddenly the idea of gaining the slightest bit of weight it's not the actual change in the skin or the change in the body part it's this attachment to the story of if that is to present itself, you are now this person and perhaps this person is nothing like anything you resonate with. Like I can't possibly see be seen as lazy or um, uh, lazy or undisciplined or unmotivated or a slob or whatever is attached to it. But I guess on the simplified front, because even though it's really complicated, it's almost like you've got this one thread hanging from the symptom. And as soon as you can actually find the thread and pull on it, you will have this whole story unravel. That's very beautifully um, succinctly represented. I think you hit the nail on, your, on the head where it's, if it's disproportionate to what that same observation might mean for someone else that didn't have any disorder history, body image distress history, then there probably is some body projection, some storying going on and a very apt reference because I find that so common with people I work with. There's a there's an exile of a past self, especially if they ever felt that they were at a weight which they at the time attributed to a difficult circumstance or difficult mm -hmm. feelings like this is why I'm not wanted or this is why I'm, I'm being judged or they were objectively told exactly that maybe mm -hmm. um, someone not wanting to be with them or a comment someone made about um, oh you'd be really attractive if you'd lost some weight that version of themselves gets um, compounded in this sense of once I'm above this certain weight or there are these symptoms like my thighs touching or that body part feeling like this and that kind of clothing, I become that other version of me that mm -hmm. I don't want to be and I don't ever want to feel like that again. And I, people will tell me like I hate or I hate like looking at a photo of that part of their life, the, themselves and that body, they feel real hate for that, that part. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a really powerful realization that there's such a strong sense of allergy to something that that I would argue from a psychological perspective was never about the weight or the cause of any any stance of uh, body size 
that may have been objectively true what people said or or even why someone was bullied for example but the feelings that that created weren't about body size that was about mm. self-concept and um and, and meaning that we projected on it and essentially being in agreement with external parties that that placed importance on the weight and do you find with the women that you've worked with that that tends to be a common factor when they're healing from their eating disorder and I'm into the point where perhaps they're free of it where they can actually look back and go oh gosh it was never about my body because I feel like that's something popular that I hear again on on the tail end of it once you've gone through all the exploring and you've gone through some of the hardships and the good times that once you have kind of awoken the truth behind these symptoms and the stories that are hiding behind more like keywords because I think that's where it becomes really tricky because we are satisfied with the key word rather than learning the story behind the word. And once we can break down the story, that's when we can start to navigate, well, how true is this story? And was my perception of it accurate in the first place? Because I'm just thinking back to even, you know, things people might say or do when you're a child and you don't hear it through an adult lens, you hear it through the lens of a child, but you might carry that child perception through your adult life, never knowing that that's not what was meant by it. And that can be really, really common, but it takes time to, I guess, even be receptive to the fact that you might have gotten it wrong because you might've built a structure around this belief and you feel like that's keeping you safe. So to put yourself in a point where you question it feels really wrong because it's like this can't be wrong. And finally, when you can get to that place where you're willing to explore, well, what if it wasn't to mean what I thought it meant, that that can also unlock a whole other world for you? 100%, exactly. I'm so glad you captured that whole interpretation as well because it might be... It might have been through even going through puberty, um, pre-puberty changes in the body and someone making a comment or maybe I don't want to, um, anyone listening that was has gone through more targeted, persistent attack of their body as well, that's still, mm. it's still relevant in that situation. Like if you were bullied for your weight objectively, it wasn't a throwaway comment, it was persistent targeted bullying or a parent that maybe weight gain in you and, and put you onto a diet or told you, you, know, you better be careful you're gaining weight too quickly those those experiences as you beautifully said are they're understood through a brain that is working at the level of a seven-year-old or a nine-year-old or an 11-year-old or a 15-year-old doesn't have the capacity the sophistication to challenge the reality of that statement or perceive the other person's reality their motivations, their agenda in making those comments, we, we're much more likely at a younger age to take it on as truth. We do think in more black, black and white terms when we're younger. And that's often that's often a giveaway mm. when we're in black and white thinking that we're in a more regressive part of ourselves as we're thinking like a younger person would think when we're just like thin, good, big, bad. When it, when it feels like that, that's probably a younger self talking, that's younger self having that perspective because we would we would graduate developmentally past that thinking um ideally sort of by the by the late teens we start thinking in more complex ways and and can critically think more and we can have that 
we can maybe do that brilliantly, the workplace or brilliantly in some parts of our lives. And then it comes to our weight and we're still thinking like our brain is eight years old or whatever it might be. That's very, very possible. So part of realizing that and being able to bring your, your adult self to it in a, in a really integrating, accepting, compassionate way, not in a, you, you got it wrong and this is the right way to think about mm. it type of approach can be very healing because it allows that feeling to be to be seen and processed and there's space to be held for it but also the possibility there for that meaning to evolve and for something else to become a new and more true meaning of of the past and of where you're going forward well yeah because it's still validating the initial thought even if you can turn around and go oh perhaps it's not what I perceived it as as you said, it's not disregarding that. It's still acknowledging that that's what you believe to be true at the time, but also knowing that other truths can evolve from it. And I just love that you brought up the clean cut, yes, no, wrong, right thinking, because that's something that sort of carries through eating disorder recovery or exercise compulsion, because everything is a very clean cut, yes, no, good, bad. And when you start to work your way through recovery, you can start to see the variation in these elements where not training isn't simply not good perhaps it's actually really good on a rest day perhaps it's really good if you've woken up without energy perhaps it's also really good to go train because you're feeling energetic and you're well fueled like there's so many variations to confirm a yes or a no or a good or a bad but it's definitely not just two columns it's more like uh, I guess in my head I'm seeing more of a mind map like you've got a yes and a no but you've got about 15 other little tree branches poking off the sides and I think sometimes that's when women start to feel more liberated with the process because there's not anxiety around well how can it only be wrong or right because everyone's saying this and everyone's saying that they start to go well there's merit to a lot of yeses and there's merit to a lot of no's but it's now up to me to take the power to choose what part of yes I want or what part of no that I want Absolutely, Jade. Yeah, that's very well captured. For anyone listening who perhaps is resonating and going, oh my goodness, I think this is me. I think this trigger of a body part or seeing something is making me so, so upset and perhaps it's not quite right. If they were to perhaps do a journal prompt or just something to kind of welcome in a new perception, is there a journal prompt or something that you would suggest as a, as a beginner's point? That's a great question. Uh, the first one that comes to mind might be something like, what would my body want me to know about this situation? What would my body say back? But sometimes just flipping the perspective can help us access other knowledges that are less practiced in our awareness because we, we're so used to having that thought of like, you know, my life that's a given but if we ask the question of well, what would my thighs say back to me or um throw it to another version of you like maybe myself in five years what might she say about where I'm at now or this thought that I'm having now another angle into that might be reframing the observation with the assumption that there's something to be learned from it or there's a healing that's coming up because it's now available. The idea that 
sometimes when we start to feel more, when more becomes available to us, it's because we're ready to process it and ready to heal from it. So if that was true, what is it about this feeling, even about, say, let's use the thigh example again, I, what is it about this feeling and belief I have about my thighs that could be, that, that there might be something for me to learn within, there might be something for me to heal in this, what would that be? And that just helps us start to encompass other perspectives into that really well-worn notion and assumption about that body part. But I do like I do like asking the body to like write back as well because it helps us connect back into its perspective and really value what it's bringing to the table. There's such a wealth of knowledge in our bodies that if we can learn to access and uphold can be invaluable in, in recovery and beyond. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing those with us. And I hope anyone who's listening decides to whip out their journal and pen and paper and have a dive in and see what see what presents itself. Because it can be such a magical experience when you take on a new perspective or you also start to witness that you've actually got so many of the answers you're searching for. And sometimes, as you said, it's just flipping a dynamic or changing a perspective and it can just open whole new doors. Um, Jacqueline, as always, our time has gone so quickly. I can't believe we're at an end. But thank you so much for joining us. And could you just remind our listeners where they can find you online? Absolutely. It's such a pleasure to be here. I would love to hear from any of the listeners today. I'd love to hear how you went with that journal prompt. And you can find me at Jacqueline at wingsandquill.com or follow along on Instagram where I love to share different ideas and offerings that we have at our practice, which is wings underscore and underscore quill. Or you can email me directly at Jacqueline at wingsandquill.com. Wonderful. Ladies, reach out to Jacqueline. She's absolutely amazing. And for now, Jacqueline, once again, thank you so, so much. And we'll see you in the next one. Thank you so much, Jay. Take care, everyone. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. If you could like the podcast or YouTube, subscribe or leave us a comment. That would be absolutely amazing. I love to hear from you and I hope to see you in the next one. Bye for now.